yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thank you so much. Let's welcome everybody joining us online. Great to have you. So Christmas is nearly here. Let's see how many kind of planners we've got here. How many of you have already got your Christmas tree up? Amazing. Oh my goodness. How many of you started to buy some presents? How many of you have bought all your presents? Nobody. How are you looking forward to watching some Christmas films, Christmas movies? Yeah. Uh, now, the thing about Christmas movies, they're designed to get us sort of into the Christmas spirit. They're sort of feel-good factor. But there's one Christmas movie that always struck me doesn't quite do that, or at least at first it's kind of a bit arresting, and it's called The Christmas Carol. I'm sure you've probably seen it. It's based on a short novel by Charles Dickens, and it's talking about a particular character of course, Ebenezer Scrooge. What a great name, Scrooge. Uh, you know, so well known that we actually use that now, his name, in, in, our, in our vocabulary. Uh, long story short, here's a guy who's pretty wealthy, but he's also very stingy. He hates Christmas, and it's almost like he's on a life mission to ruin everybody else's Christmas. And then he gets a post-mortem visit from one of his business partners, and then gets three visits from the ghosts of Christmas, basically giving him the message that he needs to change his ways before it's too late. So Christmas morning comes and, you know, Scrooge wakes up and suddenly he's different, something's changed. And he goes out and where he's been mean and miserable and miserly, there's a link between those words, he goes out, he starts being generous, he comes from being uh, kind of on his own, uh, and in, into community. Many people get blessed by his turnaround, but do you know the person who gets most blessed by Scrooge's generosity is Scrooge himself. And so unlike uh, Christmas Carol, the reading we've just heard here, uh, Paul is not talking to a church trying to get them to change. He's actually celebrating the fact that they are already radically generous. We're talking here about the church at Philippi. I mean, if you imagine like a generosity spectrum, you know, not being uh, not generous at all, 10 being perfectly generous, radically generous, I would say Scrooge before Christmas was like minus 10, 
And the Philippians would be somewhere way up there, sort of eight or nine. We know this from the letter, but we also know this from things like 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul boasts about the radical sacrificial generosity of this church to another church, the church in Corinth. So these guys are radically generous. And so Paul's already writing to thank them for their generosity, but also he wants to encourage them that in, in giving and being generous, they're not losing out, somehow they're gaining. Uh, I don't know about you, I, I, I want to grow in my generosity. Where would you put yourself on the spectrum? Hopefully none of us are on the Scrooge end of the spectrum. Uh, maybe a few of you might be right at the end with the Philippians, but probably for all of us who want to say, how can we take next steps in our generosity? Well, Paul lays out some incredible encouragements to us on this journey of generosity. He talks really essentially about three primary blessings of radical generosity. The first is this. I'm sure you'd agree. Our generosity is a privilege because it blesses others. Our generosity blesses others. Don't you love the opportunity to see others blessed through your generosity? Now, Karen loves to bless others. Last week, she came to me and had identified a need in a particular family. And um, she said, can we make this contribution? Mentioned the amount. I said, great. So normally we would give in that way uh, uh, anonymously. But this time, because it was a specific area, she goes to the mum, says we want to make a contribution. Mum's thrilled, grateful. So Karen says, well, just send us your bank details and we'll, we'll um, send you the amount. Next day, the mum comes and says, sorry, it's too late. Somebody's already given the whole amount. We've been beaten to it. Somebody else had got in there before us. <laughs> you know, we were outdone. We were robbed of the blessing of blessing them. But I love it. What it kind of said to me was that underneath the surface of this church and often popping up below, above the surface is an incredibly generous people. We've got hundreds and hundreds of individuals and many of them gathering in life groups who are proactively looking out for one another's needs. I believe it's a beautiful picture of New Testament generosity. Why don't we just celebrate that? Uh, it, it really is beautiful. And also, can I just say, let's all be alert, particularly at this time where many people may be struggling financially. Let's be alert to the Holy Spirit and to one another's needs. Now, this faithful, proactive um, generosity is actually something that the Philippians epitomise. Um, you know, we've seen right from the start of the letter, in fact, the whole reason Paul's really writing the letter to the church in Philippi is because of their generosity, how they've supplied his needs, and therefore what he calls as they've entered into a partnership in the gospel. Because Paul was basically taking the gospel all around the known world, literally changing the world, both then and now, as a result of his gospel ministry, they some had the privilege of partnering with him. And so he thanks them at the beginning. He thanks them specifically for... Um, the, the, a recent gift that they've given him uh, to help him in prison. And he says in verse 14, we pick up uh, where Paul circles back to this theme at the end of the letter. He says, it was kind of you to share, literally the word there again is our word partnership, so partner in my trouble. And you Philippians know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, say partnership, 
No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you, uh, you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. I love this. I've been to both Philippi and Thessalonica, um, or as Thessaloniki now it is. That was like the capital city. And Paul's saying, they're this radically generous church. You gave beyond yourselves. You even helped me preach the gospel in the capital city. Isn't that amazing? So he's celebrating uh, their partnership in the gospel. And before we finish this series on radical partnership, I just want to pause for a moment and once again say a big thank you and well done to radical partners. These partners in Philippi had partnered with Paul from the beginning. That's for probably the 10 years since he first preached the gospel. Well, I've got good news for us as we saw a few weeks ago. We've been going for 35 years and for 35 years we've had people who've been radically partnering together with this local church to see people's needs first in one city, then other cities and now into other nations. Why don't we give thanks for every single person who's been so faithfully and radically generous. Meeting people's practical needs, but also meeting their spiritual needs so that their lives can be changed, not just now, but for all eternity. And the great news is our impact locally and beyond is increasing. So we get more opportunity to keep blessing others. I love that. Very basic but foundational. Our generosity blesses others. But secondly... And here's the thing Paul really wants to major on. He wants to encourage the Philippians. He's really, in effect, he's saying to them and to us that our generosity also blesses us. Maybe we don't think about it like this. We think, well, you know, when we give, <clears throat> of course we help others. But I wanted to tell you that from the Word of God, uh, generosity brings a blessing back. It rebounds back to us. I mean, again, Scrooge, Many people were blessed by his generosity, but he was the primary beneficiary. Why? Because it's been statistically proven that people who are generous, including with their finances, actually end up being happier and more contented and more free because there's something about generosity, as it were, if we can unlock something in our hearts and, and, and as it were, we heard last week from our bank balances, it actually does something spiritually to us. I mean, Jesus himself said, I mean, this is probably the most famous verse when it comes to the blessing of giving. This is Jesus himself. Acts 20, verse 13 is quoted as saying, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, in our culture, we're not really told that. But even people in our secular world are picking up there's something really good about generosity. Generosity does something on the inside of us. I mean, let, let me use an illustration with my hands. You know, natural tendency with our finances, particularly under pressure, is fear comes on us and we do this. Isn't that right? We, we, we tense up in fear. Oh no, help. Because we think it's all about us. And if I keep doing this for much longer, not only are my fists clenching and tightening up, but my whole body starts kind of tightening up. How much better then just to go, whew, I'm not holding on. I'm not the source of our supply. I'm not the Lord of my life. Jesus is the Lord of my life. Everything I have comes from him. And rather than holding on in fear, I wanna first have an act of worship, say, thank you, Lord. And then I wanna say, Lord, as you bless me, may my hands be a channel of blessing to others. How many of that's incredibly liberating? <laughs> Feels good to be generous. 
And this is what Paul's really focusing on here. He's coming to this already generous church and he doesn't just want to talk about their giving. He actually wants to talk about the partnership, which is both a giving and a receiving relationship. And then he goes on and unpacks this further. He says, he wants to make clear, not that I desire your gifts. Thank you for your giving, by the way, but I'm really not, that's really not my interest. What I desire, and this is amazing, is that more may be credited to your account. That's a very strong language, may be credited to your account. Literally, um, in, in the original, it's I desire the fruit increasing to your account. Now, what we need to understand is Paul's using financial terms. It's like an accountancy, banking kind of language. One very conservative commentator writes this. By combining this term with the financial sense of account, Paul speaks in the language of an investments manager. Note that. He desires, I love this, continuously increasing profits, daily compounding interest, and accumulating dividends for the Philippians' account. Sound good? So the question is, what's he talking about? What is the account? What's the profit? What's the fruit that he's talking about? Well, commentators have, have fun on this, as you can imagine. And the first thing many point out, and I think it's a valid point, is that this is partly linking back to Paul's primary concern, goes right back to the beginning of the letter, where he's really talking to the Philippians and says, I know you're already a generous, I know you're a loving people, I want your love to abound more and more, and I want you to grow in the fruits of righteousness. In other words, he's first and foremost interested in their spiritual well-being. How many know that when we're generous, something happens spiritually on the inside of us? We get free from the grip of greed and fear and materialism, and we become more like Jesus. So that's the first thing. We could stop there, but, but I don't think that the New Testament doesn't stop there. The second benefit or fruit or profit, if you like, Paul, I believe here, if you understand the whole of his letter and the whole of his writings, he's also got his eye not just on now, but on eternity. And so when he says that fruit may abound to your account, somehow there's a sense in which when we do something right and generous in blessing others and seeing the gospel expanded in the here and now, we're not losing, we're sending it on ahead of us into eternity. And somehow when Jesus returns, there's gonna be rejoicing, there's gonna be resurrection for sure, but there's also gonna be rewards. And somehow we're gonna get rewarded for what we've done for the kingdom, what we've invested in the kingdom for now. Amen, what, what better use of our money, amen? We're sending it on ahead of us. And so there's that sense. So there's a spiritual dimension to credit to your account. There's an eternal dimension. But actually here, if you look at the context, it, you have to say that what Paul's primarily talking about is practical in the, the here and now. He's actually saying that somehow, just as they've sown financially, they are gonna get resupplied financially. If you, you know, others, it's not just an isolated text. 2 Corinthians Chapter nine, Paul talks about this principle of sowing and reaping. So I wanna say again, our natural tendency to think, I'm giving, therefore I'm losing. Paul says, no, you are investing. Now this is not some kind of manipulative give to get kind of message. Paul isn't trying to get them to give, they're already giving. How many know that our motive must not be some kind of slot machine mentality? It's not a get rich quick. It's saying, if we put God first out of a right heart to honor him, bless others, don't worry, God's gonna take care of you. And as if, as if that's not clear, verse 19, one of the, the best um, well-known promises in the whole of the Bible. How many of you have heard Philippians 4.19 before? Well, let me read it to you. It's stunning. So Paul says this, 
and my God will meet all your needs. He's just talking about their giving. And then he says, and. Do you know what the and links to the fact they've just given? And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It's so good. Let me give you another translation. ESV. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As if Paul's saying, you've been faithfully meeting my need. And I want to tell you, I know God and I know what he's like. And you're really not just investing in me. You're investing in his eternal gospel. And therefore, God's not going to be mocked. He's not a debtor. He's not going to be owing anybody. He's going to make sure that the the, the supply you've given is going to be returned to you. Amen. Beautiful. That's not the motive. But boy, is it an encouragement, isn't it, when it comes to give. That rather than being afraid, we can be entrusting. Rather than being, back to my hands, tight-fisted, We use that term, don't we? You see, if I'm tight-fisted, not only am I holding on, but I can't receive anything because I'm holding on. But if I go like this, I can say, Lord, thank you as I've been generous, as I've honoured you and blessed other people so that you can resupply. My hands are open to receive. How many want to be in a position to receive more from the Lord? Not according to the measure of your need, but according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Not our motive, but thank God for the peace that we can have knowing that God is going to resupply. And I was thinking about this. If you were God and you had loads of money and loads of resource, where would you get the resource to? You wouldn't want to pour it into people who are going to hoard it. You wouldn't want to hoard it into people who are just going to selfishly spend it on themselves. You You want to release it into people who are going to be kingdom distributors who've got their eye not just on their own needs, but on the eyes of needs of other people and on his gospel and the extension of his kingdom. Amen. So often we say unashamedly, you know, I believe God wants to bless his people. He wants to bless us to be a blessing. Pour it in, pour it out. That, that's the, the kingdom economics. So two pretty stunning reasons to be generous, amen. Other people get blessed. People's lives get changed for eternity. And somehow we get blessed spiritually, eternally, and God resupplies us financially. And then the third reason is our generosity blesses God. Now that's not in the Christmas carol. This is in the New Testament. You see, Paul's got a Christ-centered view on everything. And so he shifts from the world of commercial banking and accounting to the language of the temple and to the language of worship. Then if you know your Old Testament, you'll pick up some of the phrases here. There's lots about offerings and tithes and first fruits in the Old Testament. So, and, and Paul is deeply steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. So he says this, this, this kind of practical thing called money says when you release it to God, it almost it becomes something very sacred. I love this. They, he says, your gifts. And this is what God says about our faithful giving, are a fragrant offering. Say that, a fragrant offering. Literally, it's a, the fragrance of a sweet smell. I don't know about you, when I first got saved, um, my number one motive for giving was not, because I, I didn't know anything about we would get, receive anything, but I did want to please the God and honour the God who'd blessed and, and saved me with, by sending Jesus and his, shedding his blood that I might save. I wanted to bring fragrance and the thought that somehow I could delight the heart of God. Oh, that was enough for me. 
They are fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. How many wanna bless God and please God with your lives? Know that you can do that as, as an act of worship um, through our giving. So the question is, what, what, what kind of giving blesses or, or pleases God? What, what gladdens the heart of God? Well, if we look at the letter to the Philippians, we certainly know it was long-term, it was faithful, and if we loop over into 2 Corinthians 8, it was clearly sacrificial. But because Paul is not really, he's not teaching here them to give, he's thanking them for their giving, kind of, I find a bit frustrating. He doesn't tell them how they gave. And, but he, what he does do is he teaches another church who I think were, were further back on the generosity spectrum, the church in Corinth, which was in the south, um, he says to them, 1 Corinthians 6, verse two, 16, verse 2, he gives them some practical instruction. I think these are some of the simplest, easy-to-grasp instructions for a New Testament church. Verse 2, it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of income in keeping with your income, saving it up. I've got three P's of, of giving that blesses God. The first thing, if we want our giving to bless God, it needs to be prioritized. Can you say prioritized? In other words, giving that blesses God is God is first. Notice that it says, on the first day of every week, now, firstly, this is a principle of regularity. The early Christians, they gathered um, on the first day. That was the Sunday after the Sabbath. It was the first day of the week. They gathered every week. That was their practice. And Paul's saying, just as you gather for worship every week, so as you've had income through the week, um, so bring it to God first. Say first. But it's not just, I think, the issue of irregularity. That mentioned the word first. If any of you know your Bibles, you'll know that that should begin to trigger all kinds of other things where all the way through the Bible, there's the principle of what's known as first fruits, where we give God not last, but we give him first. We don't give him if we get round to it or if we can afford it. We give as an act of a decision, say, you're first, Lord, I put you first and I'm gonna trust you with the rest. It's a diff different arrangement. One example comes to mind, Genesis chapter four. You've got two brothers who gave, Cain and Abel, ring a bell? They both gave, but only one, um, his offering was acceptable sacrifice to the Lord that was pleasing to God, and that was Abel, why? Because whereas Cain gave some of the crops of the ground, the idea is when he got round to it, it wasn't his first thought, it was kind of an afterthought. Abel realized that God was first, and so he gave him the first and the best. Of, of, of the flock, it was an act of worship. How many know that if God is first, he needs to be first in every area of life, including our giving? Because it's an act of worship. Now the question is, how practically can we do this? Well, in, 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 in the early days, we would write checks. Anyone remember a check? Something like, I've never heard of one of those before, but anyway. Now, we, we like you know, the physical thing, write it out, bring it along. The problem was, is that sometimes I would forget to write the check and I'd eventually have to make up, but it wasn't first. And so we discovered the joy of online giving. The standing order goes out every, <laughs> the first priority can goes out. It, it helps keep us just on track 
in putting God first. It's as much of an act of worship as writing out the check or bringing a physical offering, or there's, I want to commend you if you still want to do that, but I want to just recommend to you the blessing of online giving. Set up a standing order. It may be the most spiritual thing you do this Christmas that will change the way, your whole course of your finance the rest of your life. So that's the first thing, giving prioritized. Secondly, giving is proportional. Say proportional. Now, Paul says here, the NIV translates it, um, Set aside a sum of money, money in keeping with your income. Literally, it's as you prosper. And there's a principle here. Paul's not saying if you have nothing, give what you haven't got. <laughs> it does say that the Philippians in 2 Corinthians 8 somehow gave beyond what they were able. There's another thought. But the, but the idea is we, we, we give more if we receive more. How many are ready for the Lord to prosper you in order that you have more to give away? But there's a principle here that the more we receive, the more we can give. So the question is, are there any guidelines to help us when it comes to proportional giving? And the answer, of course, is yes, all through the Old Testament and carried on into the New Testament is the principle of giving the first 10% and giving offerings over and above. And can I just say the New Testament doesn't undermine the Old Testament. Jesus didn't come to undermine the Old Testament. He came to upgrade it came to bring a different spirit uh, where the, the new is better than the old. So I remember many years ago, um, new Christian went along to a local church in Oxford and I heard teaching about this principle of giving the first and the best, the first 10% as an act of worship to God to help the ministry of the local church. And I love God. I love this local church. Honestly, I thought, great. I, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Now, at the time, I was a student, so I didn't have a lot to give. But as I look back, I actually prospered as a student. It's possible to prosper as a student, by the way. And then when we got married, carried on tithing. And then after a short while, I felt the Lord saying, I want you to increase your generosity. I want you to upgrade your giving. And I want you to start tithing, not just on your net income um, after tax. I want you to start tithing on your gross income, which is before tax. I shared that with Karen. We had a lively discussion for a while. But being a man of faith and, uh, or a woman of faith, she said, right, let's do it. And I can honestly say at that moment, something shifted. I don't know why, but it was like we, we made that. We, we it cost us more. It felt more sacrificial. As we made that step, all I can say is the blessings that are promised in Malachi 3.10, almost like tangibly something changed. Like we started living under open heaven. We started experiencing supernatural supply and people blessing us with things. We're like, whoa. We didn't do it to, we didn't give to get, but somehow God was resupplying us, amen. And then from that point, you know, I knew enough about the word. I'd studied this in a lot of detail and realized that the tithe was only to, supposed to be the starting point for our giving, not the end point. So we started giving above the tithe, started giving offerings, started looking out for others as others looked out for us. And then to this day where we look to give way beyond our tithe in special offerings, both monthly and beyond. Why? Because we want to grow on a journey of generosity. And so I want to say wherever you're at today, some of you may think, well, I haven't even begun the journey. One of the, um, but others of us, we have, we've been tithing for years. I want to encourage you. Please don't see it as the end point of your generosity. My experience is when you start tithing, doing it in the right way, in the right spirit, 
God starts blessing in order that we can become more radically generous. And that's what we see here in the, in the Philippians. They were clearly radically generous people. So we've got um, prioritized, say prioritized, proportional, and then thirdly, planned. So some people say, well, I like to be spontaneous in my giving. And I, I think that's great. Spontaneity is great. But let me be really practical. If you don't have any money planned and set aside, you can't be spontaneous. And so I, I love the principle here that Paul says, each of you should set aside, say set aside. <laughs> that's, that's got planning, that's got purpose, that's got intentionality. A sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up. <laughs> when we first uh, got married, we, we, were, we were good at spending, or actually we were good at giving, we were good at spending, and we didn't do a lot of saving. But how many know the Bible's into saving? Partly, you know, looking for the future, but also if we've got nothing saved, we've got nothing to give. And so I just want to say, I'm conscious that, you know, at a time like this, church with this range of people, you may be really struggling financially. And I want to say, I want to encourage you, take a holistic view of your finances. You may need some help. We've got We've got a course called Money Management that'll help you, not just for those in Christ, but it'll help you plan your giving. We've got immediate help, we, we, anything we can do to help you where you are. But take time to step back and begin to plan your whole giving so that your tithing in your giving comes out of a review of your whole finances. How many of God wants to bless every part of your finances, not just the first 10%? He's interested in your well-being. He wants you to go on a long-term journey of generosity, not do some kind of giving stunt. Amen? And that's why, as Charles said last week, we don't believe in pressurized giving. I don't want anyone to kind of give out of a fear or compulsion. No, allow the grace of God to work in you and the Word of God to shape your decisions. Amen. And so it links back to what Charles said last week. There's a link between contentment and generosity. You see, if we're not content, we'll always start wanting to live beyond our means. And that means we'll, we'll either have no margin or get into debt, which means we can't give and we get into the spiral. But if we'll get a hold of our desires, our contentment, say, no, we're not going to spend there. We're not going to buy this. We're going to be content with our season. Guess what? We then can have margin so we can start blessing the Lord and blessing others. And then he can start blessing us. It's all linked. So proportional, prioritized, and planned giving. So let's come back to the generosity spectrum. Where are we? And let's make a decision, wherever we're at, to go on a journey of increasing generosity. But the good news is, we don't have to do this in our own strength. We also don't need, like Scrooge, to have the ghosts of Christmas visit us, whatever that means. God forbid. Instead, we can have the Holy Spirit himself visit us with his power and with his love to change our hearts. So this is something that comes from the inside. Those of us on the joy of generosity, we know it's challenging, but I tell you, there's a, there's a oh yes, we get to do this. You say, I wanna be like that. Well, the good news is God wants to supply something into your life that will give you a sense of, I wanna do this. It's a five-letter word in our English. Begins with G. It's called grace. Hence, if you look at the book of Philippians, Paul ends his letter with these stunning words. This is the very last line of the whole letter. He's been talking about generosity, and then he comes back and he says this. 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And all together, church, let's say amen. My prayer for you as we end this radical partnership series, as we land on this whole theme of radical generosity, that we might know fresh grace. This is not just talking about past grace that God has saved. This is talking about a current grace that empowers us to become more like Jesus and to be generous like he is. Amen. It's this grace, if you read 2 Corinthians 8, I'd encourage you to read it as a kind of follow-up to this. Paul celebrates the grace of giving that was on what he calls the Macedonian churches. That includes the church in Philippi. He says, their grace enabled them, even though they were struggling financially, they had an overflowing joy which welled up in rich generosity. And then he points the Corinthians and he points us to the reason why the Philippians were so radically generous. He says this, for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, his astonishing kindness, his generosity, his gracious favor, listen to this, this is his grace, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich, abundantly blessed. That's our ultimate motivation. Jesus is our ultimate example. And so we're gonna take communion right now. I'd like to invite you to stand. And if you've got your communion elements with you, like to just hold them in your hand. Those of you watching online, encourage you to join with us. I, I was thinking about that verse there. I was thinking about the fact that, what does it mean though, though Jesus was rich? Well, I'm sure, I'm sure it means wealthy, and, but it's, it's broader than just, we're not just talking about money here. We're talking about he had all the freedom and the, the unlimited blessings of heaven. What does it mean that he became poor for us? And this is why I love, as I was just praying about this, reminded of the physical emblem of the bread or the wafer. Do you know what it symbolized? Jesus had a body. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The Son of God, who was unlimited, came into this earth. I mean, it's staggering to me. He was born of a virgin. He experienced hunger and thirst and tiredness and weakness and pain. And then on the cross, he literally gave his body for us. He allowed his body to be broken. He took in himself all the rubbish and all the pain and all the brokenness of this world. He took it in himself. And then of course, you know, the story doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose, not just spiritually, but in a glorified, resurrected body, saying, I've broken the power of sin. I've broken the power of death. And one day you're gonna join with me and experience a glorious, resurrected body. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't hold himself back, but he chose to come? 
So why don't we right now just take the bread and it may be you're not yet a Christian here and you say, I wanna, I wanna respond to the grace of God. I wanna receive forgiveness of my sins. Maybe you've been away from the grace of God. Why don't you just pray a simple prayer? Lord, forgive me. Thank you for dying for me. Why don't you receive right now fresh grace for all of us. Say, Lord, I wanna become more like you. I wanna receive fresh grace into my spirit. Let's eat this in celebration of all that he's done for us. His body was broken. And then let's take the cup. Get ready to drink the juice. Jesus described this as representing his blood. Shed to make a new and a better covenant. And we can enjoy complete forgiveness of sins. Freedom now and the hope of eternal life. So let's take this and say, thank you, Jesus, for your extraordinary generosity, for your incredible act of grace. I receive right now by the Holy Spirit fresh grace into my life, saving and empowering grace. Now, wherever we are, why don't we just, as an act of joyous surrender, let's lift our hands to the Lord. And in so doing, we're saying, Lord, you gave your life in an extravagant, extreme act of generosity. I don't want to live by fear, Lord. I don't want to be dominated by selfishness. I want to live my life for you, for your glory. I entrust everything, including all that I have and all that I own into your hands. It all came from you in the first place, Lord. So I give my heart, I give my whole life to you. And then as we do, we're gonna sing a refrain of a beautiful, simple little song. It goes like this. What can I do? What can I say? But offer this heart, oh God, to you. Let's sing this together.